We're continuing on in our study of Philippians, but we will uh, be on another passage for just a moment or two before that. So just hang on before we get to uh, before we get to Philippians. It'll be just a second or two. Uh, the famous Swiss psychologist from a past generation, Carl Jung, uh, once told the story of a Jewish man who asked a rabbi, "How come in the olden days God would show Himself to people?" But today, nobody ever sees God. The rabbi answered, because nowadays, nobody will bow low enough. Kind of an insightful answer. To see God requires humility. It requires that we lay aside our pride and our position, and that we bow low in submission to God. It requires repentance. And that's the picture that the Apostle Paul is painting for his Philippian friends. Paul described in our study last week uh, the mind of Christ, the attitude of Christ. He challenged us to have this attitude. It was an attitude of sacrifice. It was an attitude of selflessness. It was an attitude of humility and commitment and dedication to his purpose. It was an attitude of obedience to the will of God the Father. He humbled himself, we read last week, and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Jesus willingly endured one of the most miserable, torturous deaths known to man, and he did it in obedience to God the Father. The Bible is full of accounts of obedience and disobedience, and the results of the choices that were made in each case. You may remember back in Genesis 12, God told Abram to leave his home and to go to a place that God would show him. Abram obeyed, and so God said to him, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you. I will bless those who curse I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. A few chapters later in Genesis 19, God was about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. God told Lot and his family, run for the hills, leave the city, don't look back. And of course, you know, Lot's wife did look back as God was destroying Sodom, and the result was she became, as the scripture says, was turned into a pillar of salt. She did not run far enough, and the sulfur of all the explosions of God's destruction of Sodom rained down on her, and she became a pillar of salt. Genesis 22, God told Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. He obeyed. And God said, I will indeed bless you. Of course, you know God didn't have him go through with it all the way. You know the story there in Genesis 22. But Abraham was willing and he was ready. And God said, I will indeed bless you. And I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. Because, God said, you have obeyed my voice. You're familiar with the story of Jonah. Jonah's told to go to Nineveh, proclaim God's message. At first, of course, he disobeyed, tried to escape, and as we jokingly say, he took the first recorded submarine ride. Then he repented, and he did obey God, which resulted in this incredible story of repentance of an entire wicked city, and God withheld his judgment on Nineveh for a hundred years because of the preaching of Jonah. You know, there is always a choice. There's always a choice. Obey God or disobey God. Do the will of God or ignore the will of God. 
And I'd like you to turn, if you would, today as we begin to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. Read just a short little parable that Jesus told here. Matthew chapter 21. Jesus says this, Matthew 21, we're going to start to read in verse 28. Matthew 21, verse 28. Jesus says, But what do you think? A man had two sons. And he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. And he answered, I will not. But afterward he regretted it and he went. Then he came to the second son and said, Likewise, same thing, Son, go work today in my vineyard. And he answered him, I go, sir. But then he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? And they answered him, the first. It wasn't the person who said, oh, I'm not going, and then changed his mind and went. I mean, he actually obeyed. But the guy says, oh, I'll do it, and then he didn't. Jesus said, no, he never, he never really obeyed. Who did the Father's will? Jesus said, it's the one who actually obeyed. And so when we think of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we think of obedience to God and following the Lord we think of Jesus, as we saw last week in Philippians 2, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. We always have a choice to obey. We always have a choice who we will obey. There was a well-known economist, John Kenneth Galbraith was his name. He was a professor at Harvard. He worked as, as an advisor to four different presidents. And in his autobiography, called A Life in Our Times, he spoke about the devotion of his family's housekeeper. Her name was Emily. And uh, John Galbraith writes this. He went by Ken Galbraith, basically, during his years when he was uh, advising presidents. He said, It had been a wearying day, and I asked Emily to hold all my telephone calls while I had a nap. Shortly thereafter, the phone rang, and it was Lyndon Johnson was calling me from the White House. He said, get me Ken Galbraith. This is Lyndon Johnson. Emily said, he's sleeping, Mr. President. He said not to disturb him. President Johnson said, well, I don't care. Wake him up. I want to talk to him. She said, sorry, Mr. President, but no, I work for him, not you. And she hung up. A while later, Kenneth Galbraith woke up. She told him what happened. He grabbed the phone. He called the president. He said the president could hardly contain himself. He was laughing so hard. He said, you tell that woman I want her working for me in this White House. <laughs> Why? Because she was devoted to her boss. Didn't, care, didn't matter if the president called. She was going to do what her boss said to do. Pretty amazing. In the little devotional we have at the back of uh, Our Daily Bread a number of years ago, a fellow named Archibald Rutledge wrote that one day he met a man whose dog had just been killed in a forest fire. He was heartbroken, and the man explained to Rutledge how it happened. He said, I work outdoors. I often take my dog with me. And that morning, he said, I, I left my dog in a clearing next to my lunch bucket and told, told him to stay there. And, and watch the lunch bucket while I went into the forest. His faithful friend understood that's exactly what he did. A wildfire started in the woods. The blaze spread to the spot where the dog had been left, but he did not move. He stayed right where he was in perfect obedience to his master's word 
and he was found some hours later dead of smoke inhalation lying next to his master's lunchbox right where he'd been told to stay. With tearful eyes, the dog's owner said, I, I always had to be careful what I told him to do because I, I knew he would always do it. My point in the little stories is this, that devotion and submission always lead to obedience. Devotion and submission always lead to obedience. The dog was so devoted to his master, he became obedient to the point of death. He suffered because of his devotion to the master. The housekeeper of this uh, economist was devoted to her boss, and for that devotion and obedience, it led her, first of all, to hang up on the president, and secondly, to be wanted at the White House because of her loyalty. Devotion and submission always lead to obedience. And one of our biggest struggles in life is making the choice to be obedient to God. Even when we know what we've read in the Bible, even when we've seen actual results of obedience in our lives, even when we know the ramifications of not obeying, we still often struggle to obey what God is telling us to do. How, how devoted to God are we? The scripture says now to Hebrews, I'm sorry, to Philippians chapter 2, the scripture says, Jesus Christ humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. You know, Hebrews 5, verses 8 and 9, don't need to turn there, I just want to read it to you. It records that although he was a son, speaking of Jesus, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and having been perfected, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. In our great verses here in Hebrews, or I keep saying Hebrews, looking at my, my notes here, Philippians chapter 2, verse 8 says, Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. The Apostle Paul talking about this obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was discussing it in Romans 5, and in verse 19 of Romans 5, drawing a parallel between Adam and Christ. He said, by one man's disobedience, meaning Adam, many were made sinners. Then he says, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. You see, there, there's always a choice, and our choices always produce either positive results or negative consequences. There's always a choice. And our choices always produce either positive results or negative consequences. Do we obey God or do we disobey God? Do we do the will of God or do we ignore the will of God? Today we're going to look at one of the most well-known passages in the New Testament, containing one of the most well-known phrases in the New Testament. And, and the, the point of my introduction is to just emphasize that verses 9 through 11 are the result of verses 5 through 8. We have to grasp that in order to see the power of the passage. Jesus Christ is today exalted as Lord of the universe because he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. There's always a choice, and our choices will ultimately produce positive results or negative consequences. So let's read in verse 8, and we'll go up to verse 11. Therefore, or being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, because of that, 
God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven, of those on earth, and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Note with me as we look at these verses that God has highly exalted the Lord Jesus. And the reason is, the, the, the therefore that's there, the reason is because Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. God has highly exalted Jesus and he has given him the name that is above every name. Commentators kind of debate what that name is. I think the Apostle Paul kind of answered it when he talks about Jesus Christ being Lord in verse 11. I think that the name that is above every name is simply the name Lord, the Lord of the universe, the God of all, the, 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 the authority over all of us. You know, for many years I used to hear folks say, make Jesus the Lord of your life. Heard that preaching quite often. I haven't heard quite as much lately, although the phrase is still around in some circles. Make Jesus the Lord of your life. And I understand that, that many of them were simply referring to submitting yourself to the authority of the Lord Jesus. I, I, I get that. But I am afraid that using that phrase is misleading to new believers or to those who are not well grounded in the word. The problem being with the phrase is that it tends to communicate the idea that coming to Christ does not require submission. You just pray a prayer, you feel badly about your sin, you get forgiveness from God, and then sometime later, you go all the way with the Lord and make Him the Lord of your life. It tends to kind of communicate some sort of two-step process of coming to Christ and being obedient to the Lord. First you confess Christ as your Savior, then sometime later you confess Him as your Lord. I don't, I don't really see that process in the New Testament. And I, I understand that when a person comes to Christ... They do not become instantly holy and sanctified and suddenly start acting like a mature, grounded believer in three days. Or three weeks or three months, in many cases even three years. But if a person is truly saved, then there will be a change in their life. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.17. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. If a person is truly saved, they will have a new outlook, a new allegiance, a new loyalty, new desires. They will have a desire for the word. They will begin to grow. Now certainly all of their baggage from their past will not magically disappear, and all of their hang-ups will not suddenly vanish, but but they will be growing because they now have a new commander in life, the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, in the New Testament, Jesus is called Lord almost 750 times. I believe the last count I saw was 747 times Jesus is called Lord in the New Testament. In the book of Acts, he's called Savior twice, but he's called Lord 92 times. Let me just read you a couple of excerpts from theologians of the past. One is still a theologian of the present. He's still living. Most of you are familiar with John MacArthur. Listen to what he says regarding this concept of Jesus as Lord. <clears throat> he says, when we come to Jesus for salvation, we come to the one who is Lord over all. Any message that omits this truth cannot be called the gospel. 
It's a defective message that presents a Savior who is not Lord, a Redeemer who does not demonstrate authority over sin, a weakened, sickly Messiah who cannot command those He rescues. A.W. Tozer, who's been with the Lord for 50 years, wrote wonderfully in, in one of his books, to urge men and women to believe in a divided Christ is a bad teaching, for no one can receive half of Christ, or a third of Christ, or a quarter of the person of Christ. We are not saved by believing in His office as Christ. He is Lord, and those who refuse Him as Lord cannot use Him as Savior. Everyone who receives Him must surrender to His authority. For to say we receive Christ when in fact we reject His right to reign over us is utter absurdity. It's a futile attempt to hold on to sin with one hand and take Jesus with the other. What kind of salvation is it if we are left in bondage to sin? R.A. Torrey, who wrote a book, I used to have the book on my shelf, How to Work for Christ, first published in 1901. He used to write, as you're witnessing to unbelievers, he said, lead an unbeliever as directly as you can to accept Jesus Christ as his personal Savior and to surrender to him as his Lord and Master. And on and on we could go with more and more readings and more writings of theologians of the past. This concept of Jesus being Lord. The Apostle Paul speaks very clearly of it here. One day, he says, every single person will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. See, God has highly exalted Jesus. He's given Him the name that is above every name. And I want to take apart each phrase, and I want to think through some of those implications with you of each of these phrases. He says, verse 10, that at the name of Jesus, notice the names that are not included. We don't see at the name of Muhammad. We don't see at the name of Buddha. We don't read at the name of Gandhi or Confucius or the Dalai Lama. We don't see at the name of the Virgin Mary. And it's certainly not my name or your name. He says at, it's at the name of Jesus. And of course it's important to keep in mind on the one hand how ordinary that name was in Jesus' day. And even today you might compare it to someone today named John or Joe or Tom. A lot, millions of people with those names today. In Jesus' that day uh, that name Yeshua or Joshua in English, Jesus in Greek, uh, it, is, it is a very, was a very common name. And even today in the Spanish speaking world the name Jesus or Jesus, very common name. But while there have been, throughout the course of history, plenty of people named Jesus, there is, of course, you know, for all practical purposes, only one Jesus. There's only one Jesus who healed the sick with a word. There's only one Jesus who gave sight to the blind. There's only one Jesus who made the lame to walk. There's only one Jesus who raised people from the dead. There's only one Jesus who was born of a virgin. There's only one Jesus who was the God-man. There's only one Jesus who gave his life for us on the cross, one Jesus who rose from the dead, and one Jesus who will one day come again, emptying the graves of believers and ridding the world of sin and darkness and pain. And so Paul starts out with this great phrase, at the name of Jesus, and you know the Jesus that he's talking about. And notice the next word, every. Means all without exception. And he, and he explains who is going to bow. Those in heaven, those on earth, those under the earth. Think about that. Those in heaven and on earth and under the Every spirit being. All angels, all demons. 
every follower of Jesus who is still on earth or who is already in heaven. Every unbeliever who is still on earth or who has died and is currently suffering in Hades. In other words, all of the heavenly beings one could imagine, all of the population of this world that we live in, all of the spirits of the deceased, saved or unsaved, all of the demons of hell, even the devil himself, every, every, probably one of the most offensive words and the most offensive verse in the Bible, because we live in a world that likes to think that whether that whatever you believe is, is okay for you and is good for you and whatever I believe is okay for me and we all have our own ways and we should just accept each other and everything that we all believe and it'll all be okay and we'll all be one big happy family. But notice the word in this text is not some or even most. He says every knee will bow. Every Muslim, every Hindu, every Buddhist, every communist, every humanist, every atheist, every animist, every person in every form of false Christianity as well, everyone. And not just every religion, every lifestyle, every drug addict, every gangbanger, every pornographer, every child molester, every murderer, every cheater, every liar, every sinner, everyone. Every means those who have followed Jesus from childhood, along with those who have rejected Jesus all their lives. Those who have spent their lives in church, along with those who have spent their lives in bars, jails, and prisons created by their own sin. Some people will bow happily and voluntarily. Others will bow because the God of the universe, whom they have rejected, will force them to do so by the power of His Word. But every, which brings us to the next phrase, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Since ancient times, to bow the knee has meant to acknowledge authority. Every knee will bow at the name of Jesus. Everyone, regardless of what they believe today, will acknowledge the power and dominion and majesty of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God the Son, the God-man. Every knee will bow acknowledging His authority. And then he says, every tongue will confess. Regardless of what someone may say about Jesus today, whether they call him a fool or a liar or a fake or a good teacher or a nothing, regardless of what one says about Jesus today, the day will come whether they have trusted in him or not, when they will speak with their lips and their voice that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every tongue will confess. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And what are they going to say? That Jesus Christ is Lord, that Jesus Christ is worthy of our knees bowing and our tongues confessing, that He is worthy of our praise and honor, that He is God in the flesh, that He is Lord. He's Lord of all creation. He's Lord of all time. He's the ultimate authority over all authority. He's the ruler of rulers, the chief of chiefs, the king of kings, the president of presidents, the prime minister of prime ministers. He is the Lord of lords. And there is no greater authority than His. And even if we don't see it now, even if the only authority a person acknowledges at this moment in time is themselves, and even if they live their entire life pleasing themselves, the day will come when they realize and acknowledge with their voices that Jesus Christ is Lord. And not only that He is Lord, but they'll acknowledge that He's 
the only Lord. And I wonder if you would look back at Isaiah chapter 45. Isaiah chapter 45. You may not know that when the Apostle Paul was writing these words to the Philippians, that he was quoting from Isaiah. He added some more to the thoughts, but the basic idea is here in Isaiah chapter 45. I just want to read a few verses out of Isaiah 45. We won't read the entire chapter. You can do that sometime if you wish to do so. But Isaiah 45, well, first of all, we're going to read verses 5 through 7. Isaiah 45, verses 5 through 7. God speaking to Isaiah, he says, I am the Lord and there is no other. There is no God besides me. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. Then look at verse 18. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and made it, who has established it, who did not create it in vain, who formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. Look at verse 21. Tell and bring forth your case. Yes, let them take counsel together. Who has declared this from ancient time? Who has told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a just God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, that to me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall take an oath, and he shall say, Surely in the Lord I have righteousness and strength. To him men shall come, and all shall be ashamed who are incensed against him. He says, there's coming a day, God says, when every knee will bow and every tongue is going to swear an oath and say, if I am in the Lord, I have righteousness and strength and people come to him. But anybody who is incensed against God, meaning they're angry and upset and bitter against God, he says he's going to be ashamed in that day because he's still going to have to bow the knee and going to have to take an oath and say, in, in righteousness, or if you want righteousness, the only way it comes is through the Lord. Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. I am God, there is no other. So we not only acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, we acknowledge He's the only Lord. He's the only one. He's the only Savior. Every knee and it will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see why this teaching is so offensive in our culture today? The idea that Jesus alone is worthy of our allegiance does not come naturally to us. The idea that someone else is in charge besides us kind of grates on us. As human beings, we like to think of ourselves as independent and powerful. We don't like the thought of having to submit to someone more powerful than we are. We rebel against that with every fiber of our sinful nature. But the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord carries with it some serious consequences. 
If Jesus is Lord, it means that every person who has, who has ever lived and every person who ever will live is going to have to face him one day and answer for what they did with Jesus Christ. It means that everyone who does not put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ is going to have to pay the penalty for their own sin because they rejected the Lord Jesus Christ who humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So it matters infinitely what you believe. What you do with Jesus will determine your eternal future. Jesus told his disciples, and he tells us today, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. And as we just read, God spoke through Isaiah 2,700 years ago. There is no other God besides me a just God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. So as Paul writes, Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. My friends, what have you done with Jesus Christ? At the end of time, that's all that will matter. Let's pray. Lord, I know that probably most everyone here, if not almost everyone here, has bowed the knee to Jesus Christ and has admitted that He is Lord, and He is their Savior, and He is the only way to heaven. But there may be someone who hasn't truly made that commitment. And Lord, we just pray that we will come to the realization that without You, without Your way, there is no one who will ever reach heaven. You are Lord. You are the King of this universe. You are the God of heaven. You have been exalted by God the Father because of your obedience, even unto the death of the cross. You've been given the name that is above every name. Lord, may we submit to you. May we every day, even we who know you as our Savior, may we be obedient to do what you ask us to do, what you want us to do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.